Hi again, Medical Education Podcast listeners. This is Kevin Eva, the editor-in-chief of the journal, coming to you today from uh, Vancouver that is slowly getting out from underneath the snow that accumulated over the last couple of weeks. Unfortunately, that means the rain has returned, but nonetheless, I have the pleasure at the moment of looking across the continent and seeing some sun on my monitor in behind Emiko Blaylock, who is assistant professor in the Office of Medical Education Research and Development at the College of Human Medicine at Michigan State University. Amiko and her co-authors have a paper coming out in the March 2022 issue of Medical Education entitled, I Might Not Fit That Doctor Image, Ideal Worker Norms and Women Medical Students. Amiko, I understand that you've only in the last couple of years transitioned into medical education from your PhD in higher education more generally. Welcome, first of all, to the field, to the podcast and everything else. Yeah. Thank you. What brought you over to MedEd from the more general education world that you were studying in? Um, you know, it was a little serendipitous. So I finished my PhD in higher ed in 2019, also from Michigan State University, from a program called the Higher Adult and Lifelong Education Unit. And I was just looking about and somebody forwarded me a faculty position over in what we call OMARAD, Office of Medical Education Research and Development. And it was a faculty position focused on professional development of faculty, on leadership, on improving teaching and learning how students learn. And my interests were kind of intersecting in that arena. I'm really interested in issues of access and equity, students' experiences, and the way that we prepare faculty to teach diverse students. So I applied, and here I am. Excellent. So welcome. And that serendipity word is, I think, the one universal uh, (laughs) in medical education. There's a paper by Wendy Hugh a few years ago that studied how people got here. And that is the word that seems to come up all the time. Yeah, yeah. It was a good move out of higher ed into a more focused arena of our sector of, of higher education and kind of looking at that professional ed vantage point through a medical education lens. Nice. And when you say diversity and equity, the title of this paper makes it clear that you're focused here particularly on gender issues. Was that a particular focus for you in your previous life? Or is it something that became a priority when you made that transition to medical education? Yeah, it was definitely a priority and an interest of mine. I think just as a woman in academia, I'm biracial. So as a woman of color in academia, those kind of larger, what I call social scripts or social norms that really influence the way that we work. And also those norms that we also push against as we do our works were very present in my own life. And I was doing a lot of research on other women in academia, faculty in academia, and how those gender norms really shaped the work that they do. So workplace performance and gender norms. So when I got to CHM, the College of Human Medicine, I transferred a lot of those same interests and came to learn that a lot of the students in the medical field and just the larger topic of women in medicine was really ripe for asking these questions. So I just kind of started investigating and looking around and built a research study really focused on women, medical students, and asking about their experiences And a lot of what they had to say was really, really centered around their identities as women for the students of color being women of color in medical school and how those really shaped their learning experiences, their interactions with others, 
So I was able to kind of take what I had been doing previously in the field of higher education, kind of an organizational and analytic lens, and use that to help kind of uplift some of these really personal stories that these students had been sharing with me. And for the sake of those who were working outside of North America, Michigan State, I presume to be very much like other schools here where women have become dominant in number in the medical school, yet these gendered issues continue to be pervasive. Can you tell people outside of your context what the demographic makeup tends to be in your institution? Yeah, so we do have a majority of women at MSU. We also have quite a diverse student body in terms of race as well as gender and socioeconomic status. MSU is unique in that we're a community-based medical college. So we don't have like a learning hospital like a lot of other traditional colleges do. So there's a real aspect of students coming into MSU who are focused on going back out to the community. And I think that because of that, we attract a lot of students from really racially diverse backgrounds, women students who are from different areas of the U.S. And I've only come across one or two international students so far, but a lot of the participants in this study were children of immigrants. So there's a lot of cultural and racial diversity, especially for the participants in this study. And so were there particular issues in those early informal interactions you're describing that led you to believe this study had to take place? Or was it more just a general interest in trying to better understand the experience of those diverse groups? I was initially led to just really understand the experiences of these diverse groups. I feel as a researcher that bringing a critical lens to the work that I do can really add a lot of depth to how people are experiencing, especially in teaching and learning situations such as medical school. So I did interviews within the first couple of months that these women students had enrolled. And what makes MSU also a little bit different is that our curriculum starts cycling students through in their first year into clinical experiences. And so by virtue of just my background in higher ed, I knew that this experiential learning that these students were going to be going through would probably really be informative for how they were seeing themselves as doctors. I mean, I think that being new to the field of medical education, I've learned at least enough to know that there are very personal stories for why people come to medicine and why they want to be doctors. So I was really curious about that. Why did they want to be a doctor? And then also, you know, coupled with that was, what does a doctor look like to these individuals? And what does that do when we have these kind of larger symbols and ideals of who a doctor is and what a doctor does? And what happens within those first couple of months, especially for women students, when they come up against that, you know, they're rubbing up against these ideals and how are they thinking about themselves, especially in this paper. In a lot of the work that I do, I really try to highlight how participants are taking on agency for themselves as well. Always, you know, within the larger social structures, but how are they making sense of these norms as it pertains to their own selves and pursuing their lives as physicians? And is that the ultimate goal then? Maybe it's jumping to the end too quickly, especially when <laughs> this is one paper, one part of a larger program, but what are you ultimately hoping to achieve in doing that? Yeah, I mean, this is definitely, I feel like the first foray into understanding how, especially women students are making sense 
of being in medical school. This is part of a larger study that I've just completed, but I felt like these first interviews were just so full of stories that really needed to get out there into the field and needed to be heard. So I'm not sure what the end goal is. I think that I had a larger interest in issues of socialization. I know that there are many other researchers doing work on professional identity formation. But as a scholar who's really interested in doing analysis at the meta level and bringing in that critical lens I felt like there are perhaps a lot of other norms that are going on and informing how these participants are learning, how they're seeing themselves. I think there are other issues and topics in medical education that will likely come up as these students progress through their medical education and how throughout as undergrads in med ed, you know, how they're going to shift and change. And I know others are doing, you know, longitudinal qualitative research on how individuals move through med ed, medical school and how they become physicians. Doreen Balmer has been a huge help for me in that regard and others in the field have really supported this work. So I think that over time, this last year, I guess 2020 and 2021 is when I did the full study. I'm still sifting through a lot of what they shared with me over the course of a year. And some of their attitudes have changed a little bit about what they initially encountered in that first couple of months to where they ended up at the end of a eight and a half or nine month period. Well, and to help listeners understand that, I guess we should get a little bit into your <laughs> particular study and findings. One of the things you just said reminded me that you indicated in the paper that you use sense-making theory to guide these interviews and your analysis. We should probably start by asking you to explain what that is. Sure. So it comes from organizational studies. It was a theory developed by Carl Weck. I mean, in essence, it kind of is what it sounds like, right? How individuals are making sense of what is called confounding experiences. And it's typically a collection of individuals. One of the challenges with using sense-making theory is it often puts the responsibility of action on those who may or may not have the power to create change, in my view. But overall, I think it's a really helpful way to look at how people are working through disorienting experiences, how they're, like I said, making sense of those experiences. And as a result, and in Weck's view, what are they doing to make sense and take action for these disorienting or discombobulating experiences? And obviously the natural follow-up to that is how was gendering encountered or ideal worker norms encountered and what sort of mental gymnastics did your <laughs> women students indicate that they had gone through? Yeah, there were definitely some acrobatics in these interviews for sure. And there were three major things that were settled on by the team and I. And the first was the ways that they were displaying nurturing behavior. So taking on or expressing emotions, kind of that tension between being too caring and what does that say about them as physicians? How would they look? Would they look, you know, weak or passive? Or if they didn't display enough nurture, would they be seen as bossy? The second was and these feelings of needing to balance a family, which I found quite surprising that already in their first two months of medical school, they were already projecting ahead for their lives making some decisions even at that early stage about specialty choice, 
you know, working through what would it mean to have a family and be a physician simultaneously? What would they need to do? What would they need to sacrifice? And then the last one really connects really well to, I would say, Joan Acker's work on gendered organizations, which is kind of looking and acting the part. So that is very much comparing themselves to what an ideal doctor is or who the ideal worker looks like. Many of them shared how they struggled with that, feeling scared that they wouldn't be recognized as doctors. What would they do if they encountered a situation where they weren't recognized or were misrepresented as being something other than they were? Especially women who wore hijab in my study were very sincere about feeling nervous and even in clinical rounds, working with patients and even other physicians. So that was very salient for many, many of the participants. And the answer to my next question is undoubtedly it's a mix of multiple things, but I'm curious as to the extent to which even in these first two months of medical school, were your participants feeling like they were getting explicit direction or feedback about those nurturing behaviors or expectations or looking the part of a doctor? Or was it more their observations as they were looking around and trying to figure out where they fit in? I think it was the latter. You know, a lot of the participants, when I talked to them, they would kind of move back and forth between, you know, these are my experiences. This is what I'm experiencing medical school, you know, and then there would always be kind of this shift, like no one's saying it explicitly, but I can sense that because of the way this person treated me or passively, this patient asked me, oh, you're studying to be a nurse, you know. So I think those larger social scripts, to use that term again, are very present even when they're not explicit, right? They're just kind of embedded in a lot of the culture of where these students were learning. And so unbeknownst to even other physicians or other male students, some of the quotes from the manuscripts talk about how the students felt like they believed that their peers who were men wouldn't be feeling the same way that they were. They weren't taking on these kind of mental and emotional tolls of trying to already figure out how to balance a family. Mm -hmm. So I think it was both them internalizing kind of norms that they had likely been raised with, as well as encountering some of them in medical school. Well, and I think one of the things that might be particularly surprising to some is just, as you said, how quickly it occurs, how early these observations start to arise within their training. And it makes me wonder, again, even though you've said this is you know, the first part in a larger area of study, are you already feeling like you know enough that you should be promoting change in our education system to make sure that these views are supported and that the students are enabled to develop effectively? I don't know if it's that I know enough to try and implement something, but I think that this carries on a larger narrative and adds to a larger body of research that has already begun about supporting diverse students, gender, race, socioeconomic status. I mean, I think any effort to modify or adjust or implement whatever programs that we can to support students right off the bat is always going to be helpful. So I don't know that we need more information. I mean, obviously we need more information, but this one study I hope will just kind of continue to add to this wealth of knowledge that we already know about and continue to make the case for why it's important to understand that these things are happening during the transition within the first two months 
you know, and it doesn't mean that we need these really specific, discrete programs to target these individuals. It really is, for me, in my view, an issue of larger structural and cultural change that's going to have to happen. So raising awareness again, that even in this very early stage, these women students are very aware of the challenges that they'll face and already grappling with those things. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. And I can't wait to see what comes of your larger study that you were alluding to. So maybe just in terms of foreshadowing a little bit, uh, as my last question, I'll ask you to tell us a bit more about where you are taking this and what you see as the priority for the next step. Yeah, sure. So I did a year-long study with these participants, and I finished data collection with them last, I guess, May. They were wonderful, and I have developed relationships with many of them, so I decided to do it again this year. (laughs) But I think there's two things that have happened. One is that I'm currently writing off of the year-long data to really kind of show and tell these other stories that occurred about their experiences, what they learned, how they've changed, and really how they've kind of strengthened their own agentic behavior. But the other thing that's happened that I guess I shouldn't find so surprising as a qualitative researcher is just the relationships that I've developed with these participants and how even if the data that I collect the second year turns into another study that's grown from the first year. So many of the participants have shared that just me checking in on them and wanting to hear their stories is very cathartic. It adds value to what they're doing. It helps them reflect and make sense of what they're experiencing. I mean, you know, the big elephant in the corner is these students started in 2020 during the newest part of the pandemic. And so they were also in an extremely different learning environment, and they're still attempting to learn during this time. So I think just having kind of a neutral party who's really invested and interested in hearing their stories, kind of touch base with them three or four times a year has become important for them. And the relationship that I've developed with them has been surprising. And I really care about these people. So I want to do justice and honor to their stories. That comes through loud and clear in the way that you talk about them. So it's wonderful. I do hope you have that opportunity to continue to follow up with them and continue to raise awareness as you're doing with this work. It's very important. It sounds like it's having a very real personal impact on the participants, which is maybe focus for another podcast at some point is just uh, (laughs) what role participants actually play and what they might gain from studies like this. Yeah, absolutely. Wonderful. So we'll save that in the interest of time. But for those who do want more of the details of the paper that we've been discussing, again, you'll find it in the March 2022 issue of Medical Education with the title, I Might Not Fit That Doctor Image, Ideal Worker Norms and Women Medical Students, and with Amiko Blaylock as the lead author. Thanks yet again, Amiko. Welcome to the field and look forward to seeing and hearing both your name and you again. (laughs) Thank you so much.